Hello, and welcome to this Solace Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solacechurch.com. Philippians chapter 2, the verses will be up here behind me on the screen. The Apostle Paul, writing again from prison about letting humility happen, here's what he says there in verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is God's word. To which we say... Thanks be to God. Father, thank you for the gift of your word this morning, and it is a practice for us to acknowledge that your word truly is a gift. It is a guide. It is a light so that our steps don't have to be bound to darkness and speculation, but it's through your word that you are speaking and leading. And so, God, as we acknowledge that, we also acknowledge that We're here this morning because we need to be led. We're here to be led. You are the shepherd, we are the sheep, God. And certainly when it comes to something like humility, Lord, we know we we need you to produce that. We know we need you to lead us farther into that. So God, we we come to you this morning, um, and I'm just going to speak on behalf of everyone in this prayer. And say, God, we come to you as those who are naturally not humble. Um, We are naturally more selfish, God. We are naturally more prideful. But I pray today that you would reawaken within our hearts this pursuit of humility. Jesus, to model what you modeled in saving us and coming into this world. Humbling yourself to the point of death. That's why we're here. So Jesus, we invite you to lead us there. And ultimately, we invite you to speak. We have your word open because we believe you've, you've spoken. And we're also gathered here because we believe you're still speaking. You are speaking your word by your spirit. So, Holy Spirit, I pray you'd come minister to our hearts. Get me out of the way and use whatever I have here to speak your heart and change our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, this is a, um, one of probably 
maybe one of the highest peaks of the New Testament. And I know that's really hard to believe me to say because I think every weekend I say, this is the greatest verse in the whole Bible. It's kind of like when a pastor says, I'm going to finish up right here. You know, it's like, okay, 40 more minutes, right? Um, But sincerely, Philippians chapter 2, man, if there are a few mountain peaks in the New Testament, this is certainly one of them. Many scholars believe, we're going to unpack some of this uh, towards the end of the section we just read, that this is possibly Paul is grabbing from uh, um, the hymn book of the church at that point. There's a section of scripture there that follows this Greek poetry structure. It's very likely that early on before there was the New Testament in the church written, there were creeds and there were poems that the church would say to speak God's truth over their lives and to each other. And it's very possible that this passage here that we just read is one of those early church hymns that they would sing, one of those early church poems and creeds. Uh, So it's really significant. Um, But let's kind of back up for a second. I want to begin this morning with a simple question to kind of get us into what we're going to be thinking about today. Uh, The question this morning is simply, let's start with this. Do you have what you need? Do you have what you need? I think this is the first question that the Apostle Paul would be leading us to ask. I was led to ask myself this question yesterday morning at about 7 a.m., As I was packing my two kids into the car with my dad there at about, again, 7 a.m., we hit the road yesterday for a little road trip up to a place called Apopka, Florida. Can you say Apopka? I know you wanted to, so I wanted to give you the chance to say it. Um, uh, It's it's, uh, where my older brother lives, and my nephew Ashton was having a birthday party, so... We, uh, we did the drive, a little, you know, three hours if you're not stopping, um, but in our case, not three hours. <laughs> so uh, we did the drive up, and then we did the drive back last night to, to go on that trip. And, and uh, if you've ever taken a road trip with children before, you know this is one of the most important questions that we're all asking. Okay, Do you have what you need? And it's really hard to answer it when it's 6 o'clock in the morning. And you're making sure, uh, especially my dad. My dad, he, he like if, if we're going to leave at 7 o'clock, he is there at 6.50, cars running. Uh, he's even like peeking in the window. Are they up? Like he's ready to go for the trip. And so we got to make sure that we're all ready to go. A lot of pressure there. Got to leave on time. Got to have the kids ready. And so, you know, also checking out, we were looking at the weather. Uh, it's in kind of the Orlando area, so it was a little colder and rainy. Uh, so we had to make sure we had jackets. Uh, we got in the car. And I was pretty confident that we had everything we needed until we made that transition from I-95 to the turnpike. You know what I'm talking about? There in Fort Pierce. And I realized after we got food for everyone and after the car was packed, we had everything we needed except the one thing that we needed most. Gasoline, okay? (laughs) Now, I'm no mechanic, so don't be misled, all right? But... Um, I'm pretty sure that you can't run a car without gasoline. And so uh, we've kind of found ourselves in a situation there. We were at that point where it was like, if you keep going, there's not another gas station for another like 40 miles or so. And so that would have been a whole other sermon illustration here, I'm sure. Uh, but we were able to turn around and get some gas uh, and, and make up for what was lacking. So did we have what we needed? Well, for the most part, yes. But the main thing was missing. And I'll use that as an illustration to say that here in Philippians 2, you can imagine that the church at Philippi is on a bit of a road trip of life. They are journeying together through life. And the Apostle Paul is recognizing that they have a lot of key things. 
Did you notice it there in verse 1? I'll throw it up there again. We read it. Paul looks on at the church and he's like, man, there's consolation in Christ in this church. That's the first thing they have. That's a good thing. There's consolation. There's comfort in Jesus. What a great thing for a church to have. The word there, consolation, it comes from the Greek parakletos, which means to come alongside and help and bring encouragement. And that's certainly who Jesus is. Jesus is our our helper who comes alongside. He sends his Holy Spirit to be that as well in our lives. When we're down, when we're empty, he fills us, he fuels us, he comforts us. So we have that in Jesus. Glory to God. That's awesome. Another thing they had was comfort of love. There really is no comfort like knowing God's love. There's really no comfort like knowing that right now as you are where you are, without doing a thing or stopping a thing, you're loved by God. That's comforting. Uh, They have consolation in Christ. They have comfort of love. They have the fellowship of the Spirit. They've got the Holy Spirit of God in their lives, leading them together, empowering them, guiding them. They even have this thing called affection and mercy. So as as they're checking their bags, they've packed. They've got a lot of essential things here. Affection and mercy. They recognize that God hasn't just done loving things for them, but God actually feels love. Towards them. Affection. Sometimes that might be hard for us to understand. I can imagine God doing loving things, but maybe our vision of God is he's kind of fur-browed and he's sort of reluctant, but he loves nonetheless. But Paul's like, no, you have affection from God. God actually feels a fatherly heart of love towards his kids. That's awesome to know that. And you have mercy. You have the patience and the long-suffering of God. You have a God who's slow to anger. So, so Paul, again, he's kind of like leading the church along their journey to check their bags. And there's some really key essential things that they've packed along the way that are primarily connected to their relationship with God. But Paul says, in the next verse, he says, those are all great, but if there are those things, notice what he says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Paul's like, all those things are Great, but it's not enough. You're missing something essential for the journey. In fact, Paul says that without those things, he says, my joy isn't full. I love that picture of this pastor. Paul's looking on at the flock. He's looking on at the church. He has a great heart for them. And he sees all these great fruits. But he goes, my, my joy, it's, it's, it's grand. It's large. There's a lot of it, but it's just not yet completely full. There's still more in my joy to be complete. In fact, the word fulfill there, it means to to bring to completion. Paul's like, give me full joy. Make me completely rejoicing through, notice this one thing that was missing. He says, through your unity. Through your unity. Yeah, you guys got some great things between you and God, but did you know that your relationships with each other matter to God? You've got the affection of God, you have the mercy of God, you have the comfort of God, you have the consolation of Christ. But fulfill my joy, bring it to completion, have everything you need, not just some things, by also focusing on your unity, your unity. Um, Now, unity is... It's kind of a buzzword, I feel like, today. We live in the United. We like to think that we live in the United States of America. Um, 
And, and there's certainly, as of recently, I think because of the great, we kind of laugh at that, right? Because we know that that's not been true of our nation. We've been the divided states of America, the divided people of America, the divided uh, uh, political parties of America. And so there is, I think, even in our culture right now, this recognition that unity is needed, man. There's, there's just something about people being united. And, and even in the church, I see that a lot, too. And this is nothing new. Throughout the, throughout the decades and the, the generations, there have been this, this, there's been this recognition that uh, the church is so divided. Right? There's all these different groups and factions and denominations and, and arguments and um, divisions. And, and so there has been of recently, I think, this real desire for unity. But sometimes I think we can dress it up and make it really flat. We can kind of romanticize it. And I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. Like for the sake of a visual, um, we certainly, in our lives, right, in our marriages, in our church, in our friendships, we don't want this. We don't want contention. We don't want conflict. But, but nor do we want this sort of like happy, fake, surface level unity. We don't want that either. A lot of stuff today, even in the church, that's called unity is just a fake smile. What Paul is calling for here is, is it's certainly not contention, nor is it sort of like the surface level, happy-go-lucky unity, but it's this real interlocking connection and oneness between God's people. And we know the difference between this, right? Like, certainly, like, there's the Sundays where you show up to church with your wife and you're like this. And then there's the Sundays where in the car you're like this. And your kids are kind of behind the fist a little bit making you do that, right? And then you come into church and you're like this, right? Everything's fine. You see that person, there's a real issue. You see them, hey, right? And we know we know that's a show, because when you get back in the car, it goes from, to, right? Right back to that same conflict. And, and here we have Paul calling us into, here's what I would call it, like meaningful unity. Real oneness. Oneness, listen, that's not easy. Oneness that doesn't happen overnight, and that's been said even about marriage, right? The two shall become one. That happens covenantally at a ceremony. But that happens realistically over time to becoming one. you got two different upbringings, two different ways to keep the house clean or not, two different ways to parent, resolve conflict, all those different things, and the two become one. The same is true, can I say, of the church. Unity in the church, that doesn't happen overnight. It'd be nice. We can, actually, we can act like everything's fine, but that takes time. It takes time to get to this, this place that Paul is leading us to, to be a unified people with unified lives, the one thing that's needed, needed along the journey of life. Uh, notice the different words he uses here to describe this meaningful unity. He says, uh, first he says that you would have uh, the same minds, being like-minded. Now that doesn't mean that you guys have the exact same opinions about everything, but it's that you think, about this, you think the same way as you filter everything in your life ultimately through Christ, the gospel, and the word. You think the same way. You're unified around Christ. In a day and age where we are divided over politics, we're divided over petty differences, we're divided over, it's a big one in the church, we can be divided over preferences, music preferences, coffee preferences, okay, seating preferences, policy preferences, sermon length preferences, okay? Not us, but other people, um, Preferences. We, we can be divided over personalities. 
that's not my kind of personality. I don't like their person. I got to change their personality, right? This is our, our mode. We got to control everything. No, no, no. This is often the source of our contention. And Paul is calling us into like-mindedness, unity, having the same love. That's what's missing here. The same love. That people look on, and it's not this surface-level love, it's not this fake love, but they see there's the same sacrificial bearing with love amidst the people of God that looks a lot like Jesus. John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this all will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Notice this, being of one accord. Okay, one accord. The classic joke there is that they drove Hondas, right? Ha-ha! But the truth is, the truth is, the truth is, to be of one accord, all right, in the civic square. Oh, just kidding. Okay, that was bad. That was horrible. What am I saying? To be of one accord, the word there means to be of one soul. It means to be knit together in a real significant way. This is this idea of meaningful unity. To be of one mind. So, so we get this vision, all right? Not contentious, divided over secondary things that aren't Christ, that aren't the gospel, Preferences, personalities, our pride. Nor are we in a fluffy way acting like everything's fine, we're happy, we're united, it's just a fake smile. The vision that Paul has for the church, let me say this, it's the same vision that Jesus had for his church. It's the same, same vision Jesus has for your marriage. It's the same vision Jesus has for our friendships. That we would be one. Now, this is what's interesting. At the end of John chapter 17, Jesus is on his way out. He is headed towards Jerusalem. He is having his last class sessions with his disciples. He is leaving them with his final words, his, his final instructions. He is, he is um, really one of the main things he's doing is shifting their dependence on the Holy Spirit who was to come. But then in John chapter 17, you have this unique window into this final prayer that Jesus is going to pray. And, and he's going to pray it at the end of John 17 for his church. For, for soulless church in the 21st century, in 2021, living in Boca, Jesus says this. Notice this, John 17. I do not pray for these alone, the 12 disciples that are following him then. He says, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they all, notice this, may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Is this not lined up? I notice it's like jumping around on this thing. Oh, we got a nice problem here. Solution. There we go. All right. I do not pray for these. Now look at this next verse again. We did it. That they all may be one as you, Father, notice this, are in me and I in you. Here's Jesus' prayer for the church. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them. Here it is again. That they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perf made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Now, this is amazing. Uh, Jesus, he's got really one prayer here for his church. And I don't know about you, but like in my mind, I can imagine all sorts of things that I would expect Jesus to pray for, for the church, right? This is it. This is Jesus' prayer for the future church here. I imagine he's going to pray that we are protected against any threat. That's certainly real for the first century church. I imagine that he's going to pray that they persevere, pray that they don't wander off into error, uh, pray that they are in some way spared from persecution, pray that they are made holy. But Jesus zeroes in his prayer, even excessively. Like he uses the word one there over five times. 
to say the biggest priority I have for my church is real, meaningful oneness and unity. I guess this is a way to say that um, significant and meaningful unity really matters to Jesus. It can kind of be a secondary thing to us, but it is a primary thing to God. A lot of us, we're too comfortable with our relationship with God being great and our horizontal relationships being fractured. We're too comfortable with that. We're too okay with disunity. We're too okay with division. According to Jesus, this is the, the vision he has. This is his heart for the church that we would be one in that significant way. And so, again, that's what we see the Apostle Paul praying for the church. That they would fill up his joy and that they would be made one. Now, uh, one of the interesting things that we see here with Paul is how he expects them to get into a place of unity. And that's really the best part. But we know what Paul wants for them. We, we read that. He wants them to be one. But how do they get there? How do we arrive at unity? And it's this beautiful one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight letter word. Humility. Humility. <laughs> Just absolutely killing it. Hold on. This is, this is humbling, you know? All right. <laughs> is it working yet? No. I give up. I don't even care. All right. I'm just going to teach the Bible. All right. Humility. Humility. That, that's the primary thing that, that, that Paul zeroes in on. Mike, if you just want to click them as I go to them, we got this, bro. We're going to be of one mind here, brother. All right. That's the word I want. Perfect. Uh, there, there's this humility that Paul points to as, listen to this, the only way to true unity. Humility is the only way to true unity. This is also relevant to my trip yesterday. Um, as the kids are constantly all throughout the entire trip asking, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there? We actually, we left our house. We live five minutes from I-95. And we got on I-95 and Evie said, are we there yet? And I said... <laughs> We literally just got on the highway. And at one point, as we were getting off of uh, 95 to get on the turnpike, she said, no, Dad, you're going the wrong way. you got to go that way. Um, and just the whole time giving her feedback. Uh, but the truth is, there's really only one way, Evie, to get to Apopka. It's north, okay? I can't go south and end up in Apopka. Um, I guess I could. It would take me a long time. I have to go the whole globe. I don't know how that works. But um, th there's only one way there. And Paul is saying the same is true with unity. There's only really one way to arrive at the unity that God wants for our marriages, our friendships, and in our churches, and it's through humility. That's the only way there, he says. Um, it's, it's really interesting, too, because the way that Paul leads us, as we read those verses, the way that Paul leads us into this humility here in this passage, uh, if you notice those next uh, seven or so verses are where Paul is describing the kind of humility that we need to adopt and take on in our lives to live in this unified life. And, and, and this isn't just true of, of Philippians. Like, this is true of my life. This is true of all of us. There are times when, when there are divisions in our life for non-pride reasons. I get that. There are differences. There are major disagreements. But I'm not talking about those things. Paul isn't talking about those things. Paul is talking about the major theme of a lot of our disagreements. Which is not just that they're wrong and I'm right, but it's that I think I'm always right. It's my pride. It's not just Paul, but look at Proverbs 13.10. Mike, throw that one up for us. Proverbs 13.10. It says this, that by pride comes nothing but strife. This, this is just true. 
Um, humility, Paul would say, unites. Pride divides. Uh, and, and this isn't also just limited to Proverbs and Philippians. In fact, we, we've done a whole study on sort of the destructive nature of pride before. Uh, we studied the, uh, the minor prophets last year. We looked at one of the minor prophets, a guy named Obadiah. As we looked at his book, we saw this destructive nature of pride lived out in a nation that was in opposition against God. And we saw how, how pride took them down. Um, and, and certainly, we don't need to just look into the Bible to see that. We could see into our own lives the destructive nature of pride. Uh, one of the, the greatest works on this in kind of digesting and processing pride and humility is the book Humility by Andrew Murray. This is one of those books that you need to prepare yourself to read. There's conviction on every page uh, within every line. I highly recommend this book, Humility by Andrew Murray. Uh, and in this book, Andrew Murray describes how pride is really the source of everything that's wrong with, with our divisions and our relationship with God. And he gets into how humility is really the only hope for the peace and the unity we want. Uh, would you throw up that first quote? I think it's by Andrew Murray. Here it is. Uh, Andrew Murray says this. He says, Pride, or the loss of humility, is the root of every sin and evil. It was when the now fallen angels began to look upon themselves with self-complacency that they were led to disobedience and were cast down from the light of heaven into outer darkness. Even so it was when the serpent breathed the poison of his pride, the desire to be as God, into the hearts of our first parents that they too fell from their high estate into all the wretchedness into which man is in... uh, that's, That's interesting. Which man is in heaven and on earth. That makes sense. Pride... Self-exaltation, notice this, is the gate and the birth and the curse of hell. And so it follows that nothing can save us but the restoration of our lost humility, the original and only true relationship of the creature to its God. And so here's what Jesus is all about. Jesus came to bring humility back to earth and to make us partakers of it and by it to save us. Paraphrase, pride is what's wrong with us. Pride is what's wrong with us in our relationship with God. It's what's wrong with us often in our relationships with each other. And the gospel of Jesus, even as we see here in Philippians 2, that verse that we read, is this mission to bring humility back to the earth. To bring humility back into our hearts, into our lives, and into our relationships. Another quote by Andrew Murray. Andrew Murray says this. He says, humility is the cardinal virtue the root from which grace can grow, and the one indispensable condition of true fellowship with Jesus. This is so true. I don't know if we would think this way often. Maybe we think that true maturity and and true fellowship with Jesus is how much of the Bible we know or or what we do in our works and our goodness and our morality. But do we know that there's a kind of pride that's moral? Do we know about that? It's called called, uh, self-righteousness, right? spiritual pride. And so Andrew Murray and even the Apostle Paul here in this passage would point to say, listen, true maturity in Christ is not how much you know, it's not all the great things that you do, but it's humility. It's a humility that Jesus came to bring into our lives. It's the true root, the one indispensable condition of true fellowship with Jesus. Now, being that this is what Jesus came to bring into our lives, and we certainly see that here in the text we read, But what the Apostle Paul does here in this passage is something interesting when he talks about humility. He talks about humility in our lives as something that we need to let happen as Christians. Hence the title of the message, Let Humility Happen. I want you to notice this. Notice verse 3, verse 4, and verse 5, and how each 
At each point in these verses, the Apostle Paul uses the same word to describe what we're called to do. He says in verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. But in lowliness of mind, notice this, let each of, each of you esteem others higher than himself. Verse 4, let each of you not look out for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Verse 5, let this mind in you be in you, which was also in Christ. Isn't this interesting? So here I am, as a person called to unity, with sort of this default nature of, of pride and contention, which brings strife in my life, called into the humility of Jesus. Paul, Paul what do I need to do for that humility to actually be in my life? He says, you got to let it happen. Four times he says, let humility happen. I think that's really interesting. It's 1 Peter 5. Why don't you throw that up, Mike? 1 Peter 5, where Peter says something similar about humility. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So the big idea here, same idea as Paul, is that humility isn't something that we wake up into. I, I don't know if you slept in the clothes that you're wearing right now. Right now, You may have. It might have been a tough night. Okay, You're welcome at church this morning. Okay. But it's very likely, highly probable, that most of you intentionally clothed yourself in what you're currently wearing and you changed. Now, not all, maybe you're like, well, I actually wore the shirt to bed, but that's okay. That's all right. We've been there. We've all been there. The idea there is that it's an intentional thing. We don't wake up in the clothes that we're right now currently wearing. We've put them on. We've allowed them to dress us, and the same is true of humility and pride. You see, uh, let, me, let me say it this way. It's not our default mode to be dressed in humility. Nobody in this room wakes up humble. Nobody in this room wakes up going, man, who can I serve today? I'm just, I wake, we, you know, we don't wake up self-forgetful. We wake up self-mindful. We wake up, I don't know about you, maybe this is just me, but I wake up thinking, what do I have to do today? What do I need this morning? What do I want to do? I, I, right? It's like, it's the way you warm up for a song, me, 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 right? That's the song of our lives. I am always on my mind. I'm always the one consuming my attention. It's not natural for me to wake up clothed in humility. Uh, so, so, so Peter says we need to clothe ourselves. We need to dress ourselves. Uh, Paul says we need to let humility happen. The idea there is that it's a choice. Um, I like the expression. I've heard it said well before that pride is like a beard. You got to shave it every day. You, sh you shave. You go, man, I'm not prideful anymore. I used to be prideful. But I decided to be humble one day. It's like, well, is it possible that pride is still creeping up in your life? No, I'm humble now. Again, and I'm proud of it, right? It's that same issue all over again. So there's got to be this discipline that Paul leads us to, that in Christ, Christ has sought to bring that humility into our lives that we should dress ourselves in. And Paul, um, here in this passage, he gives a few lets. Uh, he gives what we'll call this. He gives four ways that Paul leads us to let humility happen in our lives. That's what he shows us. Uh, is that up there, Mike? I need like a mirror. That would be awesome, right? Um, four ways to let humility happen in our lives. You see the first one? The first one he put there was uh, through a personal filter of humility. That's the first thing he says, the way that we need to let humility into our lives, through a, a personal filter. He tells us there in Philippians 2.3, throw that up there. He says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Here's the first way to be clothed in humility. Paul gives this filter, this, this life filter. And he says, in all that you're doing, and all that you're pursuing, he goes, 
seek to filter out selfish ambition and conceit. It's a personal filter for life. Um, the, the word there, selfish ambition, can kind of be confusing. Um, you know, ambition, by the way, is not a bad thing just by itself, like being ambitious. You know, the Bible says, like, for example, to, to desire the position of being a pastor, for example, is a good thing. To be ambitious. It's okay to be ambitious for the right reasons. But obviously here, Paul is talking about a kind of ambition that is self-centered. An ambition that is looking inwardly. He says selfish ambition and conceit. We all know this word, to be conceited. The word literally means empty or vain glory. And they kind of go together to communicate this idea. Here's what Paul is talking about in regards to the negative effect of pride and the filter of humility. The kind of pride that Paul is talking about that we should filter out of our lives is what we'll call the self-centered pursuit of one's own personal interest, agenda, and glory. Paul's like, you got to filter this out. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition, self-centered motives that are for the purpose of conceit, vain glory. I love that idea because it's like you're seeking glory, but Paul's like, it's empty. It's vanity. There's no substance to it. So there's a filter. I've got to filter out this and be clothed in this filter of, of, of rejecting the self-centered pursuit of one's own personal interests, agenda, and glory. It's that idea of living for me, for what I want, when I want it, at the end of the day, for my own self. Now, obviously, the key word here in what Paul is talking about is the four-letter um, force of self. Me, self. Self-centeredness, self-exaltation, self-preservation, all the different self-sins. Uh, at the end of the day, you could really summarize the selfishness that Paul is talking about here to this like pursuit of being first and before everyone else. That's, that's really what it comes down to. Um, there's a, an interesting verse in, in 3 John, 3 John chapter 1, where John calls out a guy in the church named Diotrephes. Poor guy, poor name. Um, Little dio, hey dio, Diotrephes. John says this about Diotrephes. He says, Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. He says, so when I come, I will call attention to what he was doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us. It's the NIV. So I'm sure Diotrephes was like, he was there while they're reading that public letter. He's like, oh gosh, when's Paul coming? Or John, this is going to be great. When I come, I'm going to bring attention to what he's doing, right? Now, there was this spiritual leader, Diotrephes, in, in this church who was, who was sort of like using Paul's or John's absence as a chance to promote himself. And, and he's like, yeah, okay, their ministry is great, but what about me? I got to be first. I need all the attention. Me, 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 me. He loved to be first. There's an illustration of this in the Gospels as well when the disciples in Matthew chapter 20 are there with Jesus. And out of those disciples, two of them, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they are uh, helped out by their mother who goes to Jesus and asks a little favor from Jesus. Uh, the scriptures tell us that the mother of James and John went to Jesus and said, Hey, Jesus, when, you know, when your, your kingdom comes and, and you're sitting on your throne, do you think it's possible that you could save a seat, reserve it, for my two boys on your right and your left, James and John? Could you save a spot for them up there on the throne of heaven? Small favor, right? <laughs> do me a solid, Jesus. Let them sit there. Now, it doesn't say this here, but I think we really know what's going on. Um, I don't think James and John's mom was like, I need to take care of my boys. I don't think, that could, be, could have been it. That's a mom, right? But it's likely that uh, she was 
asking for them, right? You ever like had to ask, you had a question asked, but you didn't want to be the one to ask it, so you're like, hey, you ask it, you know? Like, hey, Jesus, my mom wants to talk to you, you know? Is it okay if they can sit on your right and your left? Can they receive and experience the same glory as you? Now, the Bible, I think there's some insight to the fact that they put their mom up to it because it says that the other disciples looked on at James and John and they were like displeased with them. Like, come on, guys, right? And Jesus goes on to describe the life that he's leading them to live as his followers. And it's not a life that seeks exaltation. It's not a life that seeks to be first. It's not a life that's seeking my own glory. It's a life that seeks to serve. He says, you look at how people lead in our culture. Those that are in leadership positions, they lord it over those that are under them. But not so with you, he says. You've got to filter that out if you're going to follow me. There is no place for self in discipleship to Jesus in the sense of self-exaltation. Jesus says things like, if anyone wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself. It's a self-denial. It's a self-forgetfulness for the sake of Jesus being first. We no longer live for our own glory. We live for the the glory of Jesus. It's a decreasing of self. I love this quote by F.B. Meyer. F.B. Meyer says this, that the only hope in our lives of a decreasing self is an increasing Christ. What Jesus calls us to is a life that's emptied of self, filled with him, prioritized around him. But the only hope of a decreasing self is an increasing Christ. And and the reason why this is so important is because we live in a culture that makes this so hard. There's really two problems we face with selflessness, okay? One is culture and the other is ourselves, right? My my flesh loves to be first. I love to be ahead of the line. I hate waiting. I I love to go and not let the car get in front of me, right? I, I love to be first. I love to be taken care of. And on top of that, my culture wires everything to be all about me. Everything in the consumer marketplace is about you and you taking care of you and you coming first. Have you put yourself first lately? All right. We have you in mind here and everything's marketed. It's interesting how effective it is in our culture. Everything's marketed at selfishness and it sells, man. It Selfishness sells. It works. The only hope with these tendencies towards selfishness and a culture feeding that selfishness The only hope of decreasing ourselves is increasing Christ. It's it's seeing the glory of Jesus. There's nothing like getting a vision of how grand and how glorious Jesus is that will cause you to stop seeking your own glory. It'll make you go, my glory is empty. My glory is vain. That's the glory I'm living for. We'll be a lot like John the Baptist. Isn't he famous for saying this in John 3.30? He said, he must increase and I must decrease. That's the filter. The the second thing he gives us is not just a personal filter. Write this down. He also gives us a relational posture of humility. So how can I let humility happen in my life? Well, I need a personal filter, filtering out any pursuit of my own glory and agenda and motive. That's going to wreak all sorts of havoc in my relationships. But I also need this posture of humility, which he says, instead of Instead of doing things through selfish ambition and conceit, he said, in lowliness of mind, notice this, let each esteem others better than himself. It's interesting. So so one option is I live prioritizing me and me first. The other option is a, a pathway of humility that I'm to let into my life and let happen in my life, that I'm to clothe myself in in Christ. And it's a posture that's relational in its nature and its orientation that causes me to not try to esteem myself first, but I start to esteem others first. 
I place others higher. Now, don't misunderstand. Paul here is not advocating for um, abasement and low self-esteem. That's not what he's saying here. It's like, yeah, esteem others higher. That's easy, right? Like Eeyore, right? That's not what Paul is getting at here. Uh, He's not getting at what, what Paul calls in Colossians false humility, He's not saying put yourself down in the dumps and, and sort of have this, this posture of lowliness. It's like, yeah, I'm so humble. Everyone's better than me, right? That's not what he's saying. That, that, that's not humility. There's a, there's, a, there's a pride even in self-pity. He's talking about a life that knows its worth in Jesus. That has enough esteem knowing they're a child of God who's been saved by the living God. And when that's true, when you have in and of yourself, when you don't need others to praise you to find your worth, listen, you can esteem others higher practically because you don't need them for your worth. Do you understand what that means? I don't need you to, to, to know who I am in Christ. I'm actually free to honor you. I don't go into a room and, and, and fish for compliments and fish for attention and fish for praise. I'm not looking for glory for myself. I know who I am in Christ, and so now I'm free to honor you and encourage you and consider you and serve you. I actually get off my mind and I think more about you. This is not natural, is it? When we walk into a room, how many of us are thinking about everybody else? No, we're thinking, how am I? Am I good? How am I acting? How am I looking? Am I being weird? I can be weird in public. Is this weird? All right. <laughs> kind of awkward. Two-minute mingle thing. Oh, we got to talk? Hi, Right? Esteem others higher than yourself, to give worth and value to others rather than yourself. Um, I I think the greatest summary of this is the great quote by C.S. Lewis who helps us with humility. He says this, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of myself, it's not insulting the cross of God, it's not insulting the creator by not knowing who I am in him and what he's done in my life. Nor is it being so self-centered and so self-esteemed that I don't ever think about and care about others. I don't just walk around thinking my needs are the most important needs. My opinions are the most important opinions. I esteem others. Um, And and this can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. I mean, the, the way that you show someone value one way is like, here's, here's something I've learned. Like one way that you can esteem others higher than yourself is give them your time. Like that's just a simple start. Give them your time. Like you're worth my time. Um, another way is give them your ear. <laughs> you're worth my, you can give someone your time and not give them your attention. You know what I mean? You can have my time and you can have my attention. I'm going to esteem you higher than me. And, and there, by the way, there's times where we need to talk and we need to be listened to. I'm not saying that. Paul will talk about that. But is our lives filled with this display of me being the most important, or do I actually consider what others are going through? And also, there's got to be this esteem that says, give me your burdens. What are you carrying? How can I help you? How can I serve you? A great way to let humility happen is through this relational posture. And this is certainly true of any friendship, any relationship. Usually when there's a disagreement, here's what I've found. Most um, irreconcilable differences come from me believing that my opinion and my hurt and my perspective is more important than how you feel. So I esteem myself. I esteem what you did to me. Now, it's okay to say this is how you hurt me. But is there also a sense in which you go, I'm going to die to self and hear how I might have hurt you? 
How, how can I esteem what you're going through? All right. Now look at this next one. There's this. Some of these are kind of inter, interwoven. But the first let was a filter. The second let is esteeming others higher. The third let is a practical habit. I love this practical habit. It kind of flushes out this esteem thing a little bit more. There's this practical habit that he talks about in verse, what is it, verse 4. He says, let, third let, be clothed in humility by letting each of you look out, keyword there, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. There's this practical habit he talks about. There's this relational posture that I'm not seeing myself as most important. I'm actually able to value you and what you're going through and what you have to say. But then there's this habit that I adopt in my life where I look out not only for my own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, I mean, it's, it's encouraging to hear Paul say, not only your interests, which is like, it's okay to look out for your own interests, right? Humility doesn't mean like you don't get a job, you don't, you know, save your money. You, don't, you know, it's not like I got to give everything away and be homeless to be humble. No, okay? No, he says, look out for your own interests. But for most of us, that's not our problem, I don't know if there's, there's a handful even of people in this room who th- their biggest issue is I'm just looking out for others too much. Now, that can happen. That can happen, especially as a parent, right? It's like, you're like, you're, Andrew, you're teaching about serving others. It's my job, right? Like, constantly looking out, constantly looking out. But there is also this heart posture that can be dangerous in life where we're always ultimately looking out for ourselves. Like I even find this, that I even find like even in my house, I can do things, whether it's for Brittany or for the kids. This is just a confession moment here, okay? Um, I hope it inspires you to look within, okay? Um, <laughs> but I find myself that a lot of times I can look out for others in a selfish way. So, so maybe I can, you know, it's like I can earn some credit, you know? It's like, see that thing I did, and, you know? I looked out for you. It's like, well, you were really just looking out for yourself, right? And, and, and Paul is leading us to a kind of Christ-like humility. Uh, and the word there for lookout, it's really interesting. It's the word scope. <laughs> so, so Paul is in the Greek, he's literally saying scope out the interests of others. The idea there is it takes effort. It takes intention. It was funny. I think just yesterday or the day before, I got a text from David Peterson. And he used this phrase. He, David leads our family park connects every other week. All the families come together at the playground, hang out, fellowship. It's a good time. And David said that he was scoping out. Use that phrase. I'm scoping out a park in Del Rey for our, ne- our next family connect. So that was a little plug right there. All right. Next family connect in Del Rey. But I love that phrase. I'm scoop, scoping it out. You know, we, we use that same term, whether it's to go check the surf or, or whatever it may be. Let me go see if there's any seating in this restaurant. I'm going to scope it out. And Paul's like, scope out the needs of others. I love that. Don't just look out for you, but look out for others. In, in a practical, habitual way, be someone who's on the lookout. How can I serve? What do you need? The idea here is that it takes intention. Uh, and it's kind of, this kind of uh, idea is kind of convicting. In Andrew Murray's book, Humility, here's what he says about it. Here's kind of a, a good test of true humility in our lives. Andrew Murray says, the only humility, I'm kind of mad at him for saying this, actually. But he says, this. he says, the only humility that is really ours is not the humility that we show before God in prayer, but that which we carry with us and actively live in our ordinary conduct. I'm really good at being humble before God. Not, I don't mean that in a prideful way. I mean, it's, 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 it's easy for me to come before Creator and say, I'm nothing before you. And that's a humility that we can lean in. We lean into that every Sunday morning. We say, God, you're God, and I'm not. And we humble ourselves before you under the mighty hand of God. 
Andrew Murray's like, the only humility that's really ours is, is not just the humility we show before God, but it's, it's our ordinary life. It, it's saying, oh, no, you go. Come on in. I'll sit here. I'm not in a rush. Go. You go first. Cut, cut me off, please, right? No, no, you first. You first. I mean, think about that. What would it look like for us to be those kinds of people that resemble Christ in such a way that we're so not on our minds, we're so looking out for others in our ordinary life that we're saying, you first, you first, not me first and me first. Uh, lastly, this is the closing idea here, and I don't mean 45 more minutes, I promise, all right? 35. Just kidding, that's a joke, all right? The last thing that Paul says to do in order to let humility happen in our lives is he talks about humility that is clothed in our lives through a gospel mindset. That's the last thing. In verse 5, here's the last let. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul is going to bring it all home. He says already, he says, hey, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. That's a filter. Okay, unity is going to only come through humility. Humility looks like being clothed in this filter that says, I'm not going to be prioritizing myself. It's not about selfish ambition. It's not about, uh, about me pursuing my own agenda and glory. And then, then he gives us this posture in relationships to esteem others higher, to not just think that I'm the most important in the room, but to look around and say, who can I give my attention, my ear? Who can I receive a burden from? Who can I serve? Who can I consider? And then he says, also, let each of you look out. you got to be on the lookout. you got to be intentional to look for other ways that you can serve people. And don't just be thinking about yourself and looking out for yourself. Look out for others. Say, you go. You first. And then he brings it all home to say, this humility is rooted in a mindset that we have even in our Savior Jesus. He says, let, at the end of this day, this mind of humility, let it be in you which was also in Christ. And I just stop for a second and think about this. The mind of Christ. You know, we, we have the life of Christ in the Gospels. But isn't it cool to know that we have the mind of Christ? Like, that, you know, I love these like corny night, late night talk shows. You guys like those shows where you get these celebrities on, you get to kind of get into their inner thoughts and you kind of find out what it was like filming that movie. But, but it's usually for the sake of you know, some kind of like, so you can like me more, you know, like I'm a human, I'm just like you, you know. Um, but here we, we get the mind of Christ to reveal to us who God is. We get this insight into what Jesus is really like. And here's the example of Christ. Here's this gospel mindset that we're to adopt that Jesus himself said. And there's some theology here. Notice what it says in verse 6. Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So, so Jesus says, the humility that you're called to live as a Christian is not just merely through this, I got to be a better person. I got to be more mature. Paul, where does he want to take our minds as a source of humility in our lives? He takes us to the gospel. He takes us to Christ. And he lists these three aspects of Jesus' humility. He, he lists his renunciation, his incarnation, and his crucifixion. The gospel of Jesus. He first gives us this, this renunciation that Jesus had. He tells us, and this is some theology, so it takes a little work, but you see verse 6, it says, Jesus was in the form of God. Let's stop there. Greek word there for form is the word morphe, 
We tend to use the word form to describe some kind of external thing, like, oh, they had good form, you know. But the word form there means of the same kind or quality or essence as the Father. It's the same state. Um, you know, simply speaking, the doctrine of this in Scripture is the deity or the divinity of Jesus Christ. Um, the New Testament teaches, and by the way, this is possibly, like I said, maybe an early church hymn, that Jesus wasn't just a good man, a good teacher who was born in Bethlehem. He, uh, in other words, he didn't come into existence in that manger on Christmas Day. The Bible teaches what we would call in theology the pre-existence of Jesus. Jesus said it this way. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Pre-existence. The Word was with God, and the Word was God creating all things. Jesus didn't come into existence at his birth. He pre-existed his birth, notice this, as God. He was in the form of God, the morphe of God, the essence of God. In fact, in the Old Testament, you have what are, what are called these, um, in theology, it's called Christophanies, where you have these Old Testament pre-incarnation appearances of Jesus, God, where, where you have a man stands before an angel, the angel of the Lord, and it's so much more than an angel. It's Jesus himself, there with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire, there before Joshua as this man of war. Jesus was in the form of God, and notice this, this is the humility of Jesus. He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. What a horrible translation, New King James. Um, sorry, that was a little heavy. Um, did not consider it robbery. In some of your translations, it might say that he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. It's something Jesus had, but think about this. Jesus, as God, didn't hold on to being God, but he renounced that position. He let go of that through his incarnation. Think about this. What do we do with our power? What do we do with our privileges? What did Jesus do? Think about the humility of Jesus. He laid it aside. He didn't consider it something to be held on to. How so? In coming in the likeness of man. He was incarnated. This is the incarnation, the birth of Jesus. Verse 7 says that he made himself of no reputation. It literally can be translated that he emptied himself. Jesus had all a power and authority and status and privilege. God, Christ, becomes a man. Becomes a man. Lays aside his rights and privilege to serve others. He takes it a step further. He enters into the created story. And, and that's an easy way to say it. God became a baby is crazy crazy to wrap our minds. It's a mystery uh, that Paul says, great is the mystery of godliness that God was manifested in the flesh. Like for all of eternity, we're going to be seeking to wrap our minds around this mystery. The God of the universe became dependent as a baby upon human beings that he created. Desperate as a child. Um, Ultimately, we know this is out of love. I, I think of, you know, kind of, a, I guess, a modern way to think about this. Not really modern. That doesn't make sense. Um, but a practical way to think about this would be like maybe a lesser order of beings for us. I mean, we're God becoming a human. Maybe we could think about it like um, if you became an insect. Think about this. This is deep, all right? You see it starts to rain. There's a flow of, of water, and there's a little ant pile. How are you going to save the ants, okay? Hashtag save the ants. Um, well, you're, what are you going to do, show up and yell at them? Hey! They're going to be like, ah! Right? They're all going to die, have little heart attacks, you know? And so, what do you do? 
The only way to save the ants in the ant pile is to, well, it's to be, become an ant. Or maybe, we should, maybe we're like complimenting ourselves too much as humans. Maybe it's like become a slug, right? We're a little sluggy. Um, and, and you enter into the story. Now, as humbling as that sounds for you to become an ant, for you, to, you or I to become a slug, it does not compare to God becoming a human to rescue us, to save us. Just simple thoughts. God became a man. He was incarnated. The word carnated from the Greek karna, right? The word became flesh, meat, carne asada, right? Carne. God became meat. God didn't cease to be God. Jesus didn't cease to be God, but he took on humanity in his incarnation ultimately to go to the cross. It was his crucifixion um, where he humbled himself to the point of death to go to the cross to become sin on, on your and my behalf that we could become the righteousness of God in him. This is his humility. St. Thomas Aquinas said, if you're looking for an example of humility, he said, look to the cross. Father, I thank you for this time that we've had this morning to be together, to be in your presence, and to reflect ultimately on your incredible humility in coming to save us, in coming to rescue us, in coming into this world. Lord, despite our pride, despite the fact that we have resisted you, despite, God, the fact that that we have lived for self, Jesus, you in your grace and your mercy, you left your eternal throne, you came into this world in your humility to save us. And, and we stand before you today, God, as those that are in need of that same humility in our lives. We, we are longing and looking for you to lead us to have that same mind. Just as you laid aside your power and your privileges, you came in the form of a bondservant, you went to the cross. May that same mind, God, also be in us for the sake of unity in our relationships, for the sake of, of us being one, not just as a church, but God, I just think of all the different relationships in this room and maybe the ones that aren't represented here. Maybe there's some division uh, that we can't see. We ask God that you would take us further and further into what you've done for us in your humility that you displayed toward us that we might be clothed in the same humility. That we might be able to share that same love with those around us. So Father, um, I just commit to you this, this group that's here today. And uh, Lord, starting with me, um, may we be clothed in your humility. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.